Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Miriam. She is the owner and designer for Mika Fashion. She spent 25 years in graphic design and marketing, and she has an expertise in ethics. She's lived through life-changing trauma, and she's taken that trauma and used it to make her a better human. She helps other women change their perspectives in life and go from victims to survivors to thrivers in her new book. Miriam, welcome. You are going through so much. I want to talk about this. So you interview so many women about their healing journeys. And today I want this show to be healing for you. Okay, let's do it. Talk to me about what it means to be a patient advocate. Such a hard job, such a needed job. I have to confess that I've had my moments in which I thought maybe that's my next profession. I'm a multi-potentialite. Have you ever heard the term? Did you read the book? (laughs) Did you see the TED talk? So I go through my life through these experiences. And then I say, wow, I have something here that I can give and help. I'm not going to go there, but I definitely am very outspoken about the fact that, that people have to have an advocate when they are a patient. I've noticed mistakes. I've noticed that doctors, sometimes they focus on the organ and they don't take into consideration the entire picture. They don't take into consideration the emotional part. You know, they treat the body, but they're not treating the entire combination of mind, body, soul. And we are all of that. It shows, right? Physically, every, you know, pains and aches, and it has a lot to do with your emotional state also. So when doctors don't take everything into consideration, mistakes are made. And I've experienced with my husband multiple times when doctors, I'm like, I'm not liking this. I'm not liking this. And then I put my foot down and then things got better. So I really believe that people have to go with their instincts. You know, we don't need to be medical doctors to know our loved ones and know that there is something that's off and needs to be checked. And we cannot be embarrassed and shy when people put us down, ah, yeah, you don't know, whatever. No, maintain you know, that position. If somebody feels that there's something wrong, go and pursue until you find the right doctor that's going to help you. When did you start noticing something was off with your husband? It's 10 years ago. My husband started with panic attacks and everybody was saying, well, he went through this. He went through that. You as a family, you went through loss. So now it's coming out. You know, it's manifesting itself as panic. And at that point, we accepted it. The only thing was that he was trying to heal himself, right, with both medical doctors, psychiatrists, but also through meditation and trying to balance, to to calm down and, and be able to understand his body and understand why that anxiety, why those panics. But the problem was, that nothing was helping. And he had severe panic for seven years. Severe, I mean, he could have a panic attack starting at five in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, and it would go straight till 12. By the time it was done, he was he couldn't do anything. He was sweating, he was exhausted. So it started with that, but we kept following the route of going to different doctors and then just thinking maybe this is what life is going to be from now on, you know? But then I started noticing all kinds of strange things. For example, he would eat and anything he put in his mouth, his nose would start dripping and he would have to clean his nose. And I started asking, started asking doctors, you know, this wasn't something that when I married him that he was doing, this is new. What does this mean? But everybody was dismissing me. You know, and there were all kinds of little signs like that and everybody dismissed. And then he had a a stroke. And after the first stroke, the panic disappeared. It was gone and didn't have any more panic attacks. It went from like severe panic to no panic. 
So that was also a sign that that is odd. A stroke is enough to give somebody panic if, if it's panic disorder, right? Because now you were afraid, what if I have another stroke? What if I can't then walk and, and do things? What if I'm driving and I have a stroke? So you could be more riddled with more anxiety after you have a stroke. His uh, panic was gone. And we found out that they, when he had a stroke, we found out that he had diabetes and hypertension and his carotid artery was almost entirely blocked. And now we were dealing with a stroke patient. He had lost memory. He had lost cognition. And we were trying to deal with that and diabetes and learn how to eat. And then I started noticing that no matter what we did with the diet and the medication for hypertension, the numbers didn't change. So his sugar would stay high, even though he was eating a proper diet for a diabetic and he was taking medication and his hypertension was still off the charts, even though he was taking so much medication. So that was very strange, right? Because if you, you have an illness, you're taking a medication for that illness, you should be feeling better. But again, we had that situation that no matter what we were doing, it wasn't getting better. And then, I don't know, should I go all voodoo, woo-woo? Yeah. <laughs> so I called a capitalist in Israel and I asked her for guidance because it seemed like we didn't know what to do. But let me just rewind a little bit. What made me make the call to this woman? But what happened was that my husband collapsed with severe anemia. When we got to the hospital, his hemoglobin was six. So now we have a whole new symptom. Besides the diabetes and the hypertension, everything else now, he's severely anemic. He got blood in the hospital. He got iron. He had another stroke when he was in the hospital. This time he lost vision. He was in the hospital during COVID. I was trying to advocate over the phone. My husband is telling me I have a headache. So I'm calling the head nurse, the head of the department, that floor in the hospital. I was on the phone seven, eight hours a day trying to tell. My husband is telling me that he's not feeling well. Who is there? What are you doing? What tests? And they would brush me off. They would say, well, he needs to go through this test so he can't eat. So he's, he has a headache because we couldn't give him coffee. And I said, no, he's telling me that his headache, he's seeing stars. So there's something in the brain. And you know that he is a stroke patient. Simply, they let him have another stroke under their care. They didn't even know. They send him home on Thursday. If you divide your vision into four, like a quadrant, he lost the upper right side of his vision. So when he sees you, he doesn't see that your right eye and that whole part of your head. He needs to tilt his head so that blind part is higher up so he can see your face. But it's on both eyes. So I took him to a retina specialist Friday. He said, no, this is in the brain. This is not in the eye. He doesn't have any problem with the eye. Your husband had a stroke very recent. So then I took him back to the hospital. They did another scan and they saw that he had had another stroke. So at that point, he's in the hospital. I'm freaking out because I'm not there. I'm not there to advocate for him. Here he had another stroke. I was desperate. So I called this woman who is a woman who she has visions. She speaks to a rabbi who had passed and you know, I am always very careful because we're supposed to go to God. We're supposed to introspect. We're supposed to live in this world. But I really felt such desperation that I needed somebody to tell me what to do. I made a call, which was very difficult to organize. It's very hard to get her. But I, I, I told her, it's life or death. You have to talk to me. So she spoke to me and she said to me, you have to tell the doctors that he has a mass over the kidney. It's above the kidney and behind it. And I didn't know what to think of it. And she said to me, but I want you to know that he has another problem and it's in his whole body. And she was talking about the blood, the anemia, right? But I didn't know. She said, he first has this tumor that needs to come out. 
but he has this other problem and they're not going to find a bleed. They're not going to find, he has that. It's almost like an autoimmune uh, disease that he got from all of these years that he has this tumor. So then I found a concierge doctor that you have to pay a lot of money just to be able to have him as a doctor. And I went to him and I said, you're going to think I'm crazy. That's okay. I don't have a problem that you think that I'm crazy, but I think that we need to look at over the kidney and, and there is some issue that's all over the body that may be autoimmune. I want you to bring a doctor that deals with autoimmune diseases. So in the meantime, he told me, well, we have right now a scan for, for him to swallow a capsule that's a, that's a camera to see if he has any bleeds because they were looking for bleeds, right? And as she said, there were no bleeds, but in order to give the capsule, they had to do a scan to see that he has no obstruction. So when they did that, they saw the tumor. So then he calls me back and he said, Miriam, he has a tumor. It's exactly where you told me. No. We need to do a test to see what type of tumor it is because this type of tumor is very rare. It's called pheochromocytoma. And it explains all of these symptoms, like everything from the panic attacks to the diabetes, it affects the endocrine system. So they didn't know that the diabetes was 100% from that because there are diabetics in his family, but it could. And then all the other details with high blood pressure and all of that. So anyway, we found it. At that point, I decided I was going to take him to a different hospital, a better hospital. We had to start all of these tests again. They did the surgery. They removed the the tumor. The diabetes is gone. The hypertension is gone. He does still take medication for that, but it's controlled. Before, it wasn't controlled with medication. And they think that with time, maybe he'll be able to stop it. But we still have the issue with the um, anemia. He just did another test this week, came out, no bleeds, but he's still anemic. So we still have this problem that we don't know yet how to solve. All the answers, the, the dripping of the nose after he eats, it's all part of that tumor. It's all connected. But you see that I used to ask that and I was totally ignored because I was the crazy wife that was bothered by a husband that was cleaning his nose. Not at all. I just saw a difference, right? He didn't, he didn't do this and now he does this. So, you know, there's something going on here. So you have to not be shy to ask the questions, even though they, people think that you're weird or you're funny or, you know, even going to somebody because people can go and ask questions and get opinions and say, I want you to explore this. I want you to see if it's this. A lot of people go on Google, do a lot of research. They find where those symptoms are coming from. And I think that people have to say, I have a say here. I'm the patient. I'm related to the patient. And I want you to do those exploratory tests to find out because you need an answer. Have there been any friends or people that have said things to you that have been helpful? I'll tell you, it's very interesting. I created this community, right? I have my show, I have my community, my Heal with Gold community. And there's a lot of people there in essence are strangers, right? I've never met them. But interestingly enough, some of these people are the ones that supported me in the most amazing of ways. I have a friend, I met her online, I never never met her in person, but she wanted to help and she realized that she wasn't just going to say, oh, I'm here for you. She was going to find something specific that she thought it could help. She left me a voice note, but it was like a seven minute prayer. I was crying because she was praying. You know, a lot of people say, I'm sending you prayers. I'm sending you love and life. Are they, (laughs) are they really sending prayers or it's just that moment that you're writing? Like, are you stopping and saying, you know, heavenly father, you know, God or who Jesus, whoever you believe in, are you praying for that person and saying, you know, bring them peace. But she called and she, and she did the prayer in a way that I could hear. And I was in tears. I felt so loved. I felt hugged. I felt less alone. So yeah, I have people in my community. I have people that they did meal trains. You know, I had people 
ask me, can I drive you? You know, but obviously I would always want to be there with my husband and, and do things myself. This is just my personality. But I think that the people that I less expected that did those things were the things that, that touched me the most, really. So it, it's very interesting to see how these relationships, those online relationships, they're real and they mean something. You just need to choose to be there and to also be open to receive it. I'm so happy. That's really beautiful. Can you talk to me about why you started the Heal With Gold community? My whole trajectory, my whole life changed about 10 years ago. We went through a personal loss as a family. It was about the growth past. I always say the story itself not so important because everyone has a story. Everyone has something that they go through. I think that the mystery, the thing that it's amazing to discover is how people choose to thrive despite their adversity. And it's that journey that really matters the most. So after I was going through that difficult time and I was really feeling broken and I was defining myself as broken, I used to see myself, if I had to relate myself to, a, to something concrete, I always thought myself as a vase because I was the mom, right? They were inside, they were, they were thriving because I was providing the water for the flowers. You know, this is how I saw myself. And one day, a friend of mine sent me a video of this young Thai man who spoke about the art of kintsugi. It's the Japanese art of mending pottery with gold. And the video was explaining how we're all imperfect. We're all broken. At some point in our lives, we all break. But we're not to be discarded. The point is to put the pieces together. Is what we do with our brokenness. And when we put it together, we're not supposed to hide our scars. We're supposed to be proud of them and display them. Because those scars is really what makes us so special. You know, better people, more valuable. When I saw that video, I was like, oh my God, I want to be Kintsugi. I want to put my pieces back together in a way that I can shine that gold and show people, look, you can also do it. Let's do it together. You know, let's heal together. Let's mend together. So after I started learning, I, I was consuming everything Kintsugi, meaning reading and learning and watching videos. I wanted to understand how they started the art how it worked, what it meant. And I started noticing that I was doing the work because I wanted to be Kintsugi. So I was focused on healing. And part of that journey was to interview women I knew had gone through adversity, but they considered themselves as thrivers. They were strong. They were a force of nature. And I wanted to hear their stories and I wanted to see what they had in common and could I emulate what they were doing. So I started a two-year process in which I was interviewing these women. And I've interviewed women from all religions, ages, ethnicities, heights, looks, locations in the world. And I noticed I used to write their stories, put them on my blog. And then on the, ne the next week, I used to write the top three things that I learned from that person. And I, I was analyzing, you know, I was really learning. I wasn't just writing a blog, listening a story and writing a blog. I was learning through their experiences. And I started noticing that all these women had done the same things, the same process for healing. It was the same. By that point, I knew about kintsugi, so I started comparing those activities to how you fix a kintsugi pottery. And I started noticing that it was the same. It was really the same thing. So I said, you know what, I'm going to write a book. Originally, I was going to put the stories of the women in a book. And then I said, you know what, before I do that, I just need to put the top 10 things that all these women had in common and how they related to kintsugi. So I wrote this book. And I was looking for a name and I, I wanted to call something with Kintsugi, but people don't know what it is. They don't know how to say it. So I said, you know what? Heal with gold, because that's what Kintsugi is. You know, you're healing with gold. And then what is the gold? You know, the gold are those 10 top things. That's the gold. 
And then when I finished the book, I said, well, now I need to create a community and I'll call the community Heal with Golden. Instead of interviewing people by myself, I'm going to interview people live and I'm gonna let other people experience and see my process also of learning from them. How I ask the questions, what are they, and allow them to ask questions so we could learn together. So since then I've interviewed many more women, also men. And also I brought other people to the community who have something to teach that can help us about the brain, about all types of ways of healing, because there are many ways to heal, but the basic attitude of the person, those are the 10 things, it's that attitude, you know, belief in a higher power, knowing that you have to do it together, that you can't do it alone. All those things were ways that all the women knew how to implement. So they would go in this healing journey with a lot of intention and very focused, knowing that they were, even though they felt broken and unworthy, they knew that they can put themselves together because deep down they knew that they, they were worthy of the time. They were worthy of the commitment to do whatever it took for them to thrive at the end of the day. So it's amazing. Now I'm starting another book and I hope, you know, I created a course. I didn't launch because of my husband's illness, but hopefully when he's more stable, I will launch the course heal with gold, but it became my passion to help people. And then I realized, you know, what I was doing before was wonderful, but right now, and something that became my way of healing myself, for myself to be better, right? I went on that journey, just thinking about myself. And then I started thinking, wow, let me help other people. Now it became, okay, that could be my life and it's okay. I could earn, I can make money from this experience because it's all good because I want to be immersed in that and I have something that I can give and that I can help other people. I want to go back to when you were broken. Okay. Can you talk to me about that? I was always a very strong person and a very happy person. I'm lucky that small little things make me very, very happy. I don't need a lot to feel content. It's miraculous to me you know I don't take anything for granted so when something goes well I was like oh my god this is so exciting you know that's the kind of person that I am so when there was a break in the family there was a a separation there was distancing between people to me that was the end that was how can that be possible because we're supposed to always love each other. We're supposed to, no matter what, through thick and thin, figure it out, but not stop talking, not to have discord and separation. And that to me, family is everything. And that to me was, well, if I can't keep my family all happy and all loving each other and all united, then what am I doing here? Because everything else is not so important. This is what's important. I felt that it defined who I was, being a mother, being a wife, being a a sister. All of that defined who I was. So if I couldn't keep the family together, then who I was was nothing. That's why I felt so broken. I felt that everything I thought who I was, wasn't. So then I'm nothing. And then suddenly, who am I? And I always say, we can't see each other. This is past my healing, okay? This is not before my healing. But after my healing, I came to the conclusion that we can't define ourselves in any way that it's connected to other people. We have to define ourselves as our own beings with specific values that we have that we came to gift the world. But if we define ourselves, if anything is relating to others, it can be be taken away from us. So one time I asked people, what brings you joy? And people started telling me, my grandkids, and everything had connections. And I said, I want you to bring me examples of what brings you joy, that it doesn't depend on other people, doesn't depend on other people's existence or on the people to do something for you. Like what brings you joy? When my children come to visit me, well, if they don't come to visit you, they just stole your joy. 
So what brings you joy? Because if you own it, if you know what brings you joy that is not connected to anybody else, then you always have it. You can access it even when you're sad. For example, going outside and looking at the sky brings me joy. Okay, you can go outside and look at the sky at any point. But if you say going to the beach brings me joy and you live in the desert, so what happens? Then you don't have joy in the desert? Well, you have to find joy where you are, right? You have to find joy in your home, in your bedroom, in your car. So what brings you joy that it's not dependent on anything and on anybody else? And what is the reason for your being that's not dependent on anybody else? Because yes, we're all interconnected, but we are beings, separate beings, and we need to maintain our joy, our sanity, our values, and we have to do that for ourselves. Obviously, if you are unhappy in your marriage, it affects you. But if you also know how to find joy in other things, in who you are, in the things that you do, in your hobbies or whatever it is, it's going to lift that frequency. And if you're in a higher frequency, then your relationship, even if it's not a good relationship, it's not going to be toxic and horrific, unless obviously you're a marital narcissist or somebody who's really ill, but people that disconnect, right? There's people that they are just, they were together and they have a disconnect. They don't want to be together anymore. You don't have to be miserable all the time if you can find ways to find your inner joy. And then obviously you'll have to separate, you'll split, you'll go through the process and then you'll find healing. But you don't have to do that with bitterness. Now I'm dealing with my husband's health, right? Because I learned how to maintain this joy, I am able to go through this process, not in complete devastation. Instead of crying, moping, finding that it's not fair, I'm not so old, I can have a, a great life, and here I am, you know, a caretaker, but I can find joy in what I have because I know me, I love me, I can bring joy, I know why I'm in this world, I know the gifts that I have to give, but it took time for me to realize that my joy cannot be dependent on anybody else. That is so holy of a thing to say. I really would love you to share with the audience too, some of the miracles that you've witnessed along the way. Wow, I have witnessed so many miracles. Listen, to me, what happened with my husband was a huge miracle, right? That we managed to, to find it and, and how the whole thing happened. But I've had many miracles in my life in which, for example, there was a time that we lost money. We, didn't, we really were struggling with money. And I had forgotten that I had a client years earlier that owed me money. And, you know, sometimes people owe you money. And after a certain amount of time, you just give up and you believe that you're never going to get that money again. And you just take it out of your head because otherwise you're miserable thinking about it. And during that time that we were really, really struggling, I said, God, you know, I'm your daughter. Take care of us. You know, we need to pay these bills. What am I going to do? And a few days later, this company just sent me the check. I'm telling you, it was years, years later. I don't even know how they found where, because I had moved and they found my address and they sent me a check with a letter apologizing that it took so long. But to me, you see, you, a person can choose what he sees. Somebody can choose to live in this world and say, okay, these people, they were going through a hard time. Years later, they started paying their bills and I was next in turn, in, in line. But I choose to see things from the perspective that I asked God for help and he listened. And in this world, things function with the rules and the physics of this world, right? He couldn't put money to fall from my ceiling. If he wanted to give it to me, it had to come in a way that made sense in this world. And it happened. Later on, I was thinking, and I said, God, you know, I was so upset when he didn't pay. But I should have said thank you because they saved me this money for a time that I really needed it, right? If I had gotten the money back then, I would have spent the money. 
I was in the in the mode of spending because I had I had abundance. So I was using the money. I, it would have been gone. But God, it's almost like He said, "No, you're not going to get it right now because you're going to need it a few years later. So you're going to get it later." So you can completely change the perspective and be thankful for something that's so difficult. But when you do that enough times, when you see miracles in your life, when you choose to see these miracles, and then you analyze them, and you're grateful not only for the good that you received, but for the time that you didn't have, then these things start happening more and more to you. You know, and you start learning to be grateful also during the hard times because you're already expecting the good to come because you you feel cared. My attitude of saying, "Wow, God was taking care of me when He didn't give me this check," so then He must be taking care of me right now also. I just don't see it yet. Things that seem bad could turn into something better later because I have proof. How? It's not my job to fix it. It's not my job to make this calculation. It's just my job to believe that things that seem bad could turn better in the future. When you keep happy and you keep loving and you keep being in a positive mentality and giving and being a giver, you attract more of the same. People that have mental illness, it's a whole different story. I'm talking about situational issues, you know, things that bring us down because something happened. But not, I'm not talking about when there's chemistry issues in our bodies. I'm not talking about chemical imbalances and brain issues. I'm talking about situational things. I know you told a story too on your show about getting to do a special mitzvah or good deed. That was so amazing. That was miraculous right there. So we're selling our house. And the reason I decided to sell the house, my husband hasn't been working. It's very hard on me financially. There's a lot of stress. And it's a very difficult thing because I built my house. I designed my house. I drew my house. I picked every knob, everything. And I really did a house that was in service of God. Everything that I did was with that in mind, because I'm, I'm Orthodox, but I, it's not about Orthodoxy. It's about my connection with God. I always said, God, if you give me the money to build a house, I'm going to build a house that it's a temple for you. And I'm going to do beautiful things. I'm going to invite people. I'm going to open the doors. I'm going to, I'm going to have lectures and everything is going to be in your honor. So I felt that this house was holy and to sell it, the decision to sell it was very painful, but I decided, you know what? God has a plan. I need to be somewhere else. I'm not needed here, you know, and I need to go somewhere else and I need to believe that this is for the best. So I need to, to sell the house. So I didn't put it on the market, but I told all the local realtors, if you have somebody, you can bring it, I'll pay your fee. So this young man, he doesn't even bring a couple. He calls me and he says, I'm a realtor. I understand that you have a house for sale. My clients are on a plane leaving Florida, but I think they would be great for this house. Can I come and do a tour with a phone tomorrow when they land? I said, sure. So he comes in and I said to him, let me show you the house first. Like, let me tell you all the good things about the house. So then you can tell them. So he tells me, no, I'm going to go by myself. And I'm like, okay, 6,100 square feet. The house is big. I have nine bedrooms. And he goes and he's discovering the house on his own. He doesn't see half of the things that are unique that I made. And I'm just looking at my daughter thinking, this is the strangest thing. Like, why wouldn't he want me to tell him all the good things about the house? So at the end, he comes to me and I said to him, I have to tell you something. That was very strange. Like if I had shown you the house, I could have shown you this and this and this and this. And he looks at me and he says, they like the house. They're going to be coming next week. I didn't need you to tell me all of these things. I'm telling you, Rina, this is for you to see when we are not selling the house. We're just doing the job that we need to do. But God will put in this house whoever needs to be in this house. So these people come three days later, they fly back to Florida. 
and they see the house. And after they watch the house, we sit and we have an hour and a half conversation. I give them my book. We talk about life. We talk about loss and grief and, and joy. And we're talking about that. And when they were at my house, looking at the house, he tells me, Miriam, did you know that you have a bird's nest here? And I need to explain to you something. This was Monday. My husband's surgery is Wednesday, two days later. So Monday, he tells me, you have a bird's nest. Now, in Jewish law, there is a mitzvah, there's a commandment of what do you do if you find a bird's nest? And it is one of the least comprehensible mitzvot. Not only that you don't understand, I think you don't like it. You say, God would want me to do what? But it is also one of the only two mitzvot in the Torah, in the Bible, that it tells you what's your reward. And the reward is long life. So we are two days before the surgery, which is a very delicate and dangerous surgery. He tells me that I have something in my property that if I do this commandment, we are gifted long life. I saw the bird's nest. It was on the gutter on the side of my house. And I immediately called the rabbi and I said to him, you have to walk me through and you have to come and you have to be present and you have to be with me because we have one shot to do this on Tuesday because Wednesday morning at 5 a.m. I have to be at the hospital. So he started learning every rule about it and how to do it. And we had to have witnesses and we called people and it has to be in the evening because it has to be when the mother is on the eggs, not the father. The father is on the eggs in the morning and afternoon, and the mom is in the evening and the night. And what you need to do is shush the mother away and you take the eggs. Now, a lot of people think that you need to take the eggs and destroy the eggs, but that's not the case. You raise the eggs and you say a prayer, you can put the eggs back. Now, what happens is that because the bird feels the scent of a human, they usually don't come back to the eggs. So what we decided to do was to use gloves to do the mitzvah because we didn't want my husband's scent on the egg because we wanted the mom to come back. And the mom came back and there were two birds that we watched every day until they, they hatched and, and they were born. And then they, they, the mom and the, the dad stay with the birds for two full weeks. And then the birds fly away and the mom fly away. And then that's it. And, and they're gone. So we went through this whole process. But the day before, I felt God telling me, don't worry, everything is going to be okay. And I sent you a sign because that's how we get the communication. But again, we can choose to see as a coincidence or we can choose to see a connection and a message. It was an amazing experience. You know, we felt again, very hugged and very loved and, and less alone. That is incredible. I absolutely love that. Wow. I'd love to talk about your relationship with your dad, because I know that you have mentioned he was like your best friend as well. Have you felt any signs or presence from him? Yes, I had a few dreams. And I never know, are these dreams because I just think about him all the time? Or is he coming to me, right? After the, the dreams that I felt him and I sensed him, when I woke up, I felt that they were dreams, that, that I just thought about my father so much during the day that I just continued thinking about him at night, you know. But I did get another miracle and I did get a message from my father. And, and this story is an amazing story that I'm going to share with you. So when I was nine years old, I lived in Brazil. I'm Brazilian. There was a fire in the Modern Museum of Art of Rio. And I was nine, but I loved to color and draw. And I used to think I'm going to be an artist, which I am. So I was right. But I was devastated. So I told my father, I said, I'm very upset. And my father said, why don't you color something, make something for the museum? Because they need, now they don't have anything. So I went to my room and I made a drawing, like markers, 
And I brought it to my father. My father said, it's beautiful. And I said, but how are the museum going to get it? So my father said, that you leave it to, to me. So I gave it to my father, my, my coloring. And that was that. And weeks later, I get a letter from the museum. And the letter said, Miriam, thank you so much. We love your work. Other children also sent work. So we're going to do an exposition of all the art of all the kids when we reopen the museum. It's going to be on this and this day. It was a Friday night. We couldn't go. So I missed the exposition. But I knew that this had happened. My father told me, write a letter. So when my father sent the painting, it was the, it was the coloring, right? The, the art that I did with a letter that I wrote. My father passed away in September is two years. And I was devastated because I'm very close with my father. My father passed away exactly one month after my husband's first stroke, literally to the date. It was a very, very difficult time for me, very. You know, I didn't have my father to support me through what I was going to at home. And then I also didn't have my husband to support me because he just had a stroke and he was in a different world. And I didn't have him, you know, to support me with my father's death. So it was a very lonely time. But months later, I get a text on WhatsApp. Are you Miriam Dollinger? Dollinger is my maiden name. And I said, yes. She says, I work at the Modern Museum of Art of Brazil. Can we set up a time to call? This was now, okay. I, I sent that when I was nine years old. I'm 52, okay? So 40 something years later, I get a, a text. Can I talk to you? I said, sure. So she said, we went through the archives of the museum and we found, we kept your drawing in your letter and we want to interview you. It was an interview. It came out in the biggest newspaper of Brazil. They sent it to the, their entire list. And I felt that my, this was my father coming to me, telling me, I support you. I believe in you because that's what he did when I was nine. Oh my God. My dad is going to love that story. And I would love you to talk to just a, a little bit about like your fashion line and the journey there. It's interesting. I worked for 25 years as a graphic designer, but my specialty and my niche was working with ethics and compliance. And my father was a lawyer. I always wanted to be a lawyer. One day my father took me to, this your, your dad is going to like to, he took me to a walk, you know, a walk. That was like a conversation. I knew something is coming. And my father wanted me to know that he didn't want me to be a lawyer to follow in his footsteps. He only wanted me to be a lawyer if this is what I loved. And, you know, that's who he was. And then I, I ended up going to graphic design. But when I started working with pharmaceutical companies with ethics and compliance, it was the best of both worlds because I was talking to my father about law and ethics and compliance and, and, and actions and behavior and integrity while I'm designing, you know, and, and, and he liked marketing. So it was amazing. It was 25 years that I did that. When I went through my complete breakdown, right? My essence, I didn't know who I was. At that same time, my biggest client, they were going through mergers and acquisitions. So every time that happened in pharma, they merge, you know, every so often this guy by this guy. So then all work freezes. So I wasn't working and I, I love to work. And I knew that if I wasn't going to work, I was going to go crazy because I was so sad. So I said, you know what? I'm going to start something new. I don't need the clients. I can make my own thing. You know, I can, I can build my own new career. And I started designing handbags. And I knew nothing about leather, the different cuts. I went to Italy. I'm, I'm not afraid of anything. So I just go and I do it, and, you know, and I wing it. After a year, I had my bags in many stores and I did the accessory shows in New York and I've, you know, and I made new contacts. But after a year, I really realized it was going to be very hard for me to make it big. And I wanted to make it. I didn't want to just sell a few bags. I wanted to make it. So I decided I'm going into clothing. And that first year, I started doing clothing and I was in stores, but I was not happy. 
and I couldn't understand why I wasn't happy. I was building something, it was growing and I'm, and I'm an entrepreneur first and foremost. It doesn't matter what I do. It, what matters is that I'm building something, creating something out of nothing. So I was doing that, but I wasn't really happy. And then that's when I found out about Kintsugi. So when I started learning about Kintsugi, I came one day downstairs screaming, I have an idea. In my house, when I say I have an idea, everybody runs away. Because I have an idea means I'm making this idea happen. It's not just, oh, I have an idea. I'm having an idea and I'm doing it. And I said, my clothing is going to be Kintsugi. And I'm going to use my fashion to send this message that we're all imperfect, but really it's demanding. We have to do the work. That's what makes us special. And that's what's important. We shouldn't be shy of our scars. From a minute to the next, I completely completely changed my clothing line into, I want my clothing to be Kintsugi. I want my clothing not to be about the clothing, but to be about the message of healing. So here is another miracle. About two weeks after I had this idea, this uh, PR firm calls me. I don't pay them, but they knew me. And they said, I want to connect you with these two guys who run a nonprofit organization called South Florida International Fashion Week. And they are interviewing designers to choose who to sponsor for a fashion show. And I was like, okay, I get my samples. I had nothing with Kintsugi. And I come and I meet with them. They love my clothing. And they said, we're completely fully sponsoring you to do a fashion show. You don't have to pay a penny. We're doing the models. We're doing this. You just need to come and bring 10 or 12 pieces of clothing. So I tell them, I want to go with you for coffee because I want to talk to you about my idea for my next line. I just had that idea two weeks before. So I go to the meeting and I tell them, I want to do a collection about Kintsugi. I want to call it the Kintsugi collection. And their reaction was, Miriam, this sounds great, but the fashion show is in three months from now. I think you need a year to develop this concept. And what you have is perfect. You can show the same samples that you showed us. You can come to the show with that. I go into my car and they're like, they don't know me. This line is happening. It's happening for this show. And I traveled to Portugal. I figured out how to print on that fabric. We printed foil on the fabric. I developed new styles. And Kintsugi was born. And the fashion show was incredible. I'm friends with Alfredo Versace, who's Johnny's cousin. He started Versace. He started the men division of Versace. And I told him I'm on a fashion show. He said, Miriam. If you're in a fashion show, I'm coming. I'm sitting next to you at the show. So he came and he sat next to me. And then at the end of the show, he looks at me and he says, do you know that you were the headliner of this entire show? Like, do you understand that everybody else was copies? I can tell you who they copied from. You were the only original. And it was, it blew me away to hear that from somebody like Alfredo Versace. I strongly believe that everything that I'm doing is one thing, really. So I have my, the fashion, which is about Kintsugi and healing. I have the book and the course, which is Kintsugi and healing and Heal with Gold Group. It's all the same. It's all about helping people find their way to healing. I just love the line. You are the only original. Oh my God. Is that powerful? It was so powerful. It was so powerful. (laughs) I'm totally using that for the title. Oh my gosh. That's really cool. Thank you for being open to sharing with me. And, you know, I also, we have scheduled so many times and I feel like on a spiritual level, like this is the perfect time for you to share all of this. I agree. Definitely agree. How can people support with you and celebrate with you and find your book and all that stuff? So the book is on Amazon, Heal with Gold. On Facebook, we are a women-only group. And the reason we're women-only is just so everybody can feel comfortable to share some things that are private and personal and they feel safe. But the show is also on YouTube and also on my page. So the shows can be seen by everybody. So on YouTube is MikaFashion.com. 
M-I-K-A-H fashion and purchasing gifts and clothing online. That's very helpful. (laughs) Always helpful. Wonderful. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Yeah, so what did you think of that healing journey? Well, it does appear that Miriam has a very good line that we shouldn't let our scars get in the way of pursuing, whether it's asking questions of doctors or really any profession, is that you can't really get past sometimes the impersonal view that we have by a lot of professionals, where they're only in it for the money. They're dealing with hundreds of people, if it's patients. They run tests or specialize in a certain area and don't even look at every angle. You know what I mean? Unfortunately, not everyone is sensitive to all of our needs, especially outside people. So when it comes to any member that might be in the hospital, for instance, if you don't have a family member there asking questions, seeing how they're feeling, being there, stick up for whoever their loved one is, they're getting less care and attention. You yourself have definitely seen that firsthand. Absolutely. Getting a second or a third opinion is actually recommended. There's never a stupid question when it comes to a loved one. And if you don't go out there and actually show that you really care about your loved one, it certainly can be a very losing battle. If you don't care, you can't really necessarily count on the professionals to care any more than you. And you also have to be willing, if something doesn't go right the first time, to not go back to that same place. Right. It's very clear that timing can be everything and who you're dealing with is definitely a factor. No question about it. In my case, as you know, in order to really feel 100% comfortable with my loved one, I really felt like whether I'm 100% an expert or not, I better get an education because I'm the only one that is really sincerely want to keep a family member alive. I have found that, that it was very necessary for me to participate more than asking someone else to take a share in the ride when they don't care or going to put the same emphasis as I'm going to do myself. So sometimes we just have to take the road and do the best that we can. And uh, the truth of the matter is, is that there is an ally that we all have. And this also came out in this interview again, is where Miriam mentions that everyone has an opportunity to communicate and get signs from God Almighty himself, will always help us all along the way. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com.